Romans 5, verses 3 through 5 is our text for today. This is the 26th sermon in a study through the New Testament book of Romans. If I finish this sermon, we will have completed 122 verses and there will be 311 to go, which means, of course, that we are getting there. The book of Romans was written by a missionary. In part, what Paul is doing in the book of Romans is raising money for his missionary journey to Spain. The heart of God is missions, and so I would say to each and every one of you, consider whether or not God is calling you to be a missionary. Just this week, I received a call from a gentleman who is 71 years old, and he told me that he and his wife are contemplating being missionaries in England. Is God calling you to be a missionary? If he's not calling you to be a missionary, you need to work as hard as you can to send missionaries because missions is the heart of God. Title of the sermon today is Poor in Spirit, P-O-U-R. It is 29 handwritten pages. And I would ask, please, that you would turn now to Romans chapter 5. I'm going to read verses 1 through 5 for context. Please remember, as I read, as I preach, and as you live the remainder of your life, never to forget the fact that God loves you. Hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do ask once again that your Holy Spirit would do something that is unique to his ministry. And that is to pour out the love of God in our hearts in a way that we would sense your love for us, not just know it intellectually, but in our hearts that we would feel your love for us. For Lord, we are fully convinced that if we will experience your love, then, Lord, nothing else will matter. Lord, please grant that to us, your children. Be merciful to us, O God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Use your imaginative capabilities and envision a chain. Each link of this chain has a name. The first one is hope, followed by suffering, attached to endurance, next to character. Now, take that chain and make a circle and attach character to the first link, which is hope, so that hope is the first link and hope is the last. You can clearly see this in our text today. Hope is the launching pad and hope is the final destination, uh, just like the scale 
not the scale that I stepped on this morning, which told me that I am 237 pounds, but the Sound of Music Julie Andrews scale. Uh, you know what I'm talking about. Doe, a deer. A female deer, ray, a drop of golden sun. Me, a name, I call myself far a long, long way to run. Uh, so forth and so on. Um, when Julie Andrews goes through that entire process, what ends up happening? She falls into the Von Trapp of being right where she was at the beginning. Uh, she goes from tea, a drink with jam and bread, which will bring us back to hope, a virtue, a Christian virtue. Ray, Mike's brother who has hope. Me, the preacher of this text, fa, a long, long time to preach. So don't be taking any naps. La, the word on Dodger caps. Tea, a drink with jam and bread, which will bring us back to dough or hope. See, hope is a Christian virtue. And hope is the theme of Romans 5 through 8. The theme of Romans 1 through 4 is that justification comes by faith alone, in Christ alone, plus nothing. That is the theme of section 1. Now we are in section 2, which is chapters 5 through 8. And in it, Paul explains what the Christian life looks like. In other words, what is the spiritual reality of my life from the time that I get saved until I go to heaven? And the one word above all other words which characterizes the now of the born-again Christian is the word hope. Now last week we encountered that word in chapter 5 verse 2 in a very encouraging, glorious light. Uh, the word said, we rejoice, we celebrate now in hope, that is future hope, of the certainty of reaching the glory of God or glory land, the land that outshines the sun. The confidence and the, and the certainty of eternity uh, being in the presence of the unveiled glory of God, that produces genuine hope. As we make our way into our text today, Paul says, but wait, there's more. Because if you act now, we will throw sufferings in at no extra cost. Feel the argument from two into three. Uh, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Now Paul is not dull. He, he is not daft. Uh, not only does he know that when we read the words, we rejoice in suffering, that it will, on the surface, make no sense to us, but this is part of his argument. This is part of his design. He wants to be initially shocking and counterintuitive because Paul knows that pain is painful. He's not a masochist. He understands the seriousness of pain and suffering. He, he's not playing with us here. He fully understands that when any sane person reads the words, we rejoice in sufferings, that eyebrows are going to be raised and rational people are going to ask, how do you figure? You see, what Paul is doing here 
is he is intentionally inserting a shocking statement, uh, which is abrupt and is a shift away from his previous focus on the joy of the glory of God. But even though it is unexpected and even though it is paradoxical, it's not just there for shock value, it is profoundly true. You see, strange as it may seem on the surface, rejoicing in sufferings is a good thing and the reason that we know that it is a good thing is because Paul quickly explains why it is a good thing. In that, sufferings are not an end in and of themselves. They are not a full stop. Suffering is not the goal, nor is suffering the bottom line. Suffering is just one of the links in the chain. Suffering is a link which leads to another link. And before we get to that second link, let's tighten our focus on suffering in and of itself. Now I think in the context here, Paul is primarily referring to suffering that comes our way as a result of our faith. For the most part, I think he's talking about persecution. However, I think we can also speak of suffering which is non-persecuted related as well. And the reason I say that is we need to consider the fact that any suffering which we as Christians endure in this lifetime is Christian suffering. That is true primarily because we are Christians, but it is also true because everything in this world which is not joyful in and of itself, but which is painful, comes as a result of sin and the devil. And where are we living? We are living on planet Earth. And the devil is the sub-regent of this wicked age. And so in this sin-cursed world, we are under the reign and the dominion for the time being of the wicked one. And hope of glory is a hope of an existence where sin and suffering and Satan have no voice, no influence, and no present. But for right now, the only reason that there is sin and suffering and sorrow is because of the wicked one and his reign. So, Christians are going to suffer in this evil age. That suffering will be in the form of persecution, which is primarily what Paul is talking about, but there is non-persecution-related suffering as well. Let's speak specifically about persecution. Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 through 12 is the clearest parallel to our text today. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Here's where the rejoicing comes in, verse 12. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You see, this eighth beatitude, along with its amplification, is a near match to our text today in Romans chapter 5. That being that there are two seemingly antithetical concepts, that of rejoicing and that of suffering, which go together. 
Now, in our world, in our common way of thinking, rejoicing and suffering do not blend. They do not go together well. But in the mind of God and off the pen of scriptural, scriptural writers, it is very frequent. Consider James chapter 1, verse 2, where he says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Peter also throws both of these ingredients into his stew in 1 Peter 4.13 when he says, Rejoice insofar as you share in the sufferings of Christ. It seems as though the prevailing mindset of first century Christians was to stand up for Jesus knowing full well that when they stood up for Jesus that they would be hated. And so they would stand up, they would be hated, and when it came time to be persecuted and hurt, they would rejoice and they would get happy. See how it's lived out in the book of Acts, chapter 5, verses 40 and 41. And when they had called the apostles, that is the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin, they called them in to render their verdict. What did they do? They beat them. Don't, don't, don't just skip over that. They took off their garments and their bare backs were exposed and they were flogged 39 times. They were beaten. They beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and then they let them go. So as they are walking out of the council with their backs raw and bleeding, what was their response? Verse 41, then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Talk about counterintuitive. Talk about a shocking response. Uh, this is not just them saying to the Lord, Jesus, I love you because you first loved me, and you are God, and you can do whatever you want, and you may impose upon me abuse for your kingdom, and I will take it. I will take it because I love you, but I don't want to take it. That's not their response at all. Their response is, get happy, boys. Rejoice. We just won the heavenly lottery. We were counted worthy to be flogged for Christ. And that is a privilege that doesn't come to just everyone. Thank you, Jesus. Uh, we don't have to suffer. We get to suffer. Rejoice in sufferings. Now, please do not confuse this with the mindset of the Jehovah's Witness. When the Jehovah's Witnesses will come to your door uh, with their polite demeanor and their very expensive bags offering you free literature about the kingdom of God, please know that if you are rude to them, uh, if you are cruel to them, what they will actually do is they will interpret that as God's blessing and they will feel as though they are earning points with God because you have been mean to them. In fact, they would prefer that you would be mean to them. You should not be mean to them, first of all, because it is cruel and rude to do so. Secondly, you shouldn't be doing it because you're throwing fuel on the fire for them. What you should do is politely say, no, thank you, and uh, dismiss them, and then as they're walking away, you should pray for them. But you should never be cruel or mean to people who are coming to your door. That is not what is being spoken of here. They were not like, wow, we earned points for Jesus because we got beaten. 
No, they considered themselves worthy to be suffering for the namesake. So Paul says that we are to rejoice in suffering. And then Paul says, but wait, there's more. There is a process at work here. There is a design. Uh, This suffering is intentional. It is not random. Something is being accomplished in our sufferings which would otherwise not be accomplished or achieved, and that is endurance. Romans 5.3, knowing that sufferings provides or produces endurance. You know, in my personal experience, by far, the most difficult and demanding sport that I myself ever participated in was wrestling. Football is a comparatively easy sport. In football, you play for seven seconds and then you rest for 40 seconds. In wrestling, it is six minutes of relentless exhaustion and you cannot call for a sub. This is why wrestling practices had to be so demanding so that you could build endurance. If you did not go through the pain of a rigorous, grueling workout in practice, you would not have the proper endurance to compete in a match. Now, I was always a nervous wrestler. By that I mean I did not have any confidence in my own abilities. And so in order to make up for that, what I would do is in practice every day, I would put myself in additional pain in order to build endurance. After practice ended in the basement of our school, in the gymnasium, I would let everyone leave and I would go upstairs in the hallways of our school and I would run laps around the school. Now, why did I do that? Here was my thinking. As I was running, I would say to myself, I do not know what my opponent is doing right now, but I doubt he's doing this. If I had to guess, I think right now my opponent is home watching television. I am here running laps. He might be better than me, and I cannot control that. But I can work harder than him in order to build endurance. And the only way to do that is to subject myself to additional pain, the pain of a vigorous workout. Now I just want to say, after the service today, If anybody would like to wrestle me on the front lawn of the church, it's going to be a very short match. You're going to win that match very quickly. I have not been in shape for over 45 years. It's been 45 years since I've had that kind of a vigorous workout. I have currently no physical endurance, but there was a day when I did have it. You see, God's providence in our lives in bringing pain is a vigorous workout. And when the sufferings of life leave us hurting, we need to remember that there is a greater purpose in mind, and that purpose is endurance. Perhaps the most painful aspect of pain is that it often seems to be useless and purposeless and of no redeeming value in the here and now. Well, in the world, among the unsaved, that is always the case. But in the life of a justified child of God, suffering is not an end. Suffering is a means to an end. Suffering produces endurance. And then Paul says, but wait, there's more. Endurance has spiritual offspring. 
And that is the virtue of character. Romans chapter 5 verse 4. And endurance produces character. Proven character. Character development. The word picture here in this word character uh, literally means testedness. And it comes from the blacksmith's shop. You see, when the blacksmith would be hammering out the red-hot horseshoe, uh, shaping it into its desired shape and testing it on the anvil, if that horseshoe passes the test of being hammered and beaten, then it is said to be tested and to have character. When you believe in Jesus, the microsecond that you get saved, you are justified and you will never be any more justified than you are the moment you get saved. That will never change. It will never grow. It will never develop. It will never diminish. Justified is like being pregnant. You either is or you ain't. However, character is something which is developed over time. And a baby Christian does not have proven, tested character. And that can only come through the crucible of suffering and endurance. Your character will not exceed your endurance. And then Paul says, but wait, there's more. In Romans chapter 5 verse 4, he says, and character produces hope, which will bring us back to doe a deer, a female deer. Let me give you another analogy. And I hope that you have followed this. We started with hope and now we are back to hope. Think of it this way. You are traveling down a road and you come to a fork in the road. And to the left, there's a sign that says hope. And to the right, there's a sign that says hope. And you happen to take the fork to the left. And as you do, you rejoice in the glory of God. It is a smooth ride. No bumps in the road. No traffic lights. No state police. Sun is shining. Vehicle is working perfectly. You have been justified by faith. And you have peace with God. And you have access by faith into this grace in which you stand and you rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. It is a happy road. And as you come up around the bend traveling this happy road, you see a sign in the distance and it says, Welcome to hope. On another day, you are traveling down that same road. There's an arrow to the right that says hope. And as you veer off to the right, as soon as you get on that fork of the road, it starts to rain. And immediately, you have a flat tire. And the traffic is like the LIE on a Friday afternoon. And you get stopped at every light. And you get pulled over by the police. And you stop in the village of endurance. And when you are there getting gasoline, they insult you. And when you move on from there to the city of character, asking for directions, they insult you again. And it is a miserable trip. The air conditioner does not work. It is grueling. Every 
mile of that journey is horrible. And you come up around the bend and you see a sign in the distance and the sign says, Welcome to Hope. Do you understand what has happened? The road has forked and it has gone in different directions, but it has come back together and the place where it has come back together is the same. It is the village of hope. So brothers and sisters, you right now might be on the happy road, rejoicing. Circumstantially, things might be going very well for you right now. You might be on the bumpy road. But whichever road you are on, know that it is leading ultimately to the place of hope, which is where the Lord wants you to be. Uh, 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 the Christian life, in the Christian life, all roads lead to hope. Some are glorious, some are agonizing, but the place always leads to hope. Now remember from last week, hope is not a wish or a desire, but hope is an absolute sure confidence. And what is the value of that hope? Well, that is spelled out in our main verse for today, Romans chapter 5, verse 5, which says, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Notice, it does not put us to shame. There are some versions that say hope does not disappoint. And it is certainly true that hope does not disappoint. But that is too weak of a word. The word shame is actually the correct word. How does shame fit into this? Well, when you long for something and you expect it and you speak about it and you dwell on it and you meditate upon it and you are counting on it and you count your unhatched chicken and then you turn out, it turns out to be nothing but a cruel yolk. I just, I just want you to know, look at me. I just, I hate all of you. I hate all of you. I, I'm going to be dead one day and you're going to say, I, I wish we had him back to tell those yokes. <laughs> when, when what you desire does not come to fruition, there is shame. All of our dreams are shattered, shattered, and we are put to shame. Well, the Bible says that genuine, true, gospel, developed hope will not put you to shame. It is not an illusion. It is not a fantasy. It is not a mirage. It will deliver. You will go to heaven. And, and, and how do we know this? Well, because Romans 5, 5 says, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Consider three things from this section of the verse, all beginning with the letter S. First of all, this is subjective. It is not objective. You say, well, I don't even know what those words mean. Subjective has to do with what you experience and with what you feel. Objective has to do with a truth which is written in stone, which is not alterable at all, and it doesn't matter how you feel about it. 
This is not referring to something which is objective. It is referring to something that is subjective. However, let me be clear on something. All of our subjective feelings must be based upon objective truths. Everything that we experience concerning the joy of God has to be anchored in the concrete objective truth of the gospel. This is not speaking about objective truth. This is speaking about what we feel in our emotions, hope, and the love of God. You see, so far in the book of Romans, we have spent many sermons talking about justification. Justification is objective. It is God declaring someone righteous based upon their faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Justification is 100% objective. It is a transaction which happens in the record book of God. It is not a feeling. It is not an emotion. It is an act of God's love. There is great love in justification. But, but, but it is God acting. And it is God declaring you righteous based upon your faith in Jesus Christ. However, it is not subjective. You cannot feel your justification. You can feel the results of your justification, but justification itself is something which God does in and of himself. Today, we are looking at something which is subjective. Not justification, but hope and the love of God. And it is felt and it is experienced. You see, justification happens in the throne room of God. Hope is something that happens in your heart. The second thing we need to consider from Romans 5, 5, continuing with the letter S, is that hope comes from the Spirit, from the Holy Spirit. I was somewhat shocked when I studied this week, and I discovered that in the book of Romans, this is the first mention of the Spirit of God. Is that surprising to you? Well, we have not talked about the Spirit of God in quite a while then. Let's have a refresher course. There is one God, and He exists in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not an it. He is not a force. He is not a feeling. He is a divine person, and He serves many functions in our salvation and in our spiritual growth. And one of those functions is that He pours out the love of God in our hearts. The subjective experience in the heart of a Christian of God's love is not produced by what we do or do not do. It is produced not through our seeking or our piety or our learning or our concentration or our meditation. The love of God which explodes in our hearts is something which comes about through the ministry of the indwelling Spirit. And that Spirit is inside you. You are indwelt by the Spirit. Some people teach that you are saved at one point and then you are filled with the Holy Spirit at a later time. That is not what the Bible says. You are indwelt by the Holy Spirit at the moment of conversion. Everyone who is saved is indwelt by the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. We know this because Romans 8, 9 says, 
If anyone does not have the Spirit, if anyone does not possess the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. In other words, if you do not have the Holy Spirit, then you are not saved. When we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, then he, this is his job, he pours the love of God out on our hearts. So, point number one, it is subjective. It is something we experience. Point number two, it is through the work of the Holy Spirit. Point number three. And wait, before I move on to number three, let's just again accentuate the deity of the Holy Spirit. He is Almighty God. And as Almighty God, He is all-powerful. And to say, I, I really doubt today that this love can be experienced in my heart. You are forgetting who it is that is doing it. It is God himself, and nothing is too difficult for him. This is the work of Almighty God, God the Holy Spirit. Number three, the third thing that I want you to see from Romans 5, 5, about this hope, which does not put us to shame. We're looking for another S word here, and the S word, and I used a, a, a thesaurus in order to come up with a word, has to do with the quantity of this love that is distributed, uh, the abundance, the overabundance of this. I needed an S word, and so I considered maybe using the word surplus, or stuffed, or sizable, or substantial, or staggering, and I think all of those are good, but here's the one I came up with. When we think about this concept of the pouring out of the love of God, the best one that I could come up with, the S word that I could come up with is this, so much, so much. So, a needle-pulling thread. So much. Because that word poured, P-O-U-R-E-D, means to lavishly dump something out in abundance. That which gives the Christian a sure hope, one which will not disappoint, one which will not put them to shame, is the experiential, emotional love of God in our hearts, which is given by the Holy Spirit in ridiculous abundance. You see, if you get to the city of hope via the glory road, via the sunny path, well, you will be welcomed. If you get there through sufferings, producing endurance, producing character, you will be welcomed just the same. In both cases, hope will not let you down because the love of God has been lavishly poured out experientially in your hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to you. The Holy Spirit will bless you with an overwhelming sense of God's love. But wait, there's no more. And there doesn't have to be any more. The love of God poured out in the heart of the saint abundantly is sufficient. Now look at me. If you have ever experienced the love of God in your heart poured out by the Holy Spirit, you know exactly what I'm talking about 
and you know that it is enough and that it is more than enough and that it produces sufficient hope to get you through. So in the time that remains, I want to make three observation-slash-application points from the text. Number one, Paul is not saying that we should rejoice in the midst of sufferings. Now this might be a slight grammatical nuance, but I think it has a profound application. He is not saying, troubles will come to you, and as they come, in the midst of them, you are to rejoice, although you are. But that's not what he's saying at all. He is saying, you are to rejoice because of these trials and these troubles. You are to actually rejoice and to glory in them, in and of themselves. They, in and of themselves, are to be a reason for rejoicing. You're not just going to have that stiff upper lip and to push on through and, and, and to grin and bear it. No, he is saying, here comes the trial. Here comes the suffering. When it comes, your response is to rejoice and to celebrate because God is doing something good here. R.C. Sproul puts it this way. Tribulation puts muscle on our souls. Tribulation puts muscle on our souls. So I would just ask you, are you rejoicing in your sufferings? Uh, how do you do that? Well, here's one way you can do it. First of all, I hope that when the suffering comes, you pray. I mean, we, we have been instructed by God to pray, to make our requests known to God. How about this? Instead of when you're praying, only asking God to give you relief, and it is not wrong for you to ask God to give you relief. It is not wrong for you to ask God to heal you. It's not wrong to ask God to bless you. That's not wrong. But how about this? Instead of going before God and saying, nobody knows the trouble I've seen, and God, I'm pretty miserable right now, and I need you to get me out of this, so help me, God. Instead of praying that way, how about praying this way? Lord, you know all things. And you know my heart. And you know I'm hurting. Lord, I, I'm, I'm asking you humbly to help me. But Lord, I also want to acknowledge that this trial has come my way by your grand design. And so, Lord, I want to thank you for this trial. I want to thank you for this trouble. Because, Lord, I know that you're doing something in it and through it which is going to produce in me something which would not be there otherwise, and that is endurance. And so, God, give me the grace to get through this trial. But, Lord, I just want you to know I am rejoicing in the fact that you've given it to me. Thank you, Lord, that I'm having this relational struggle. Thank you, Lord, that I am going through this sickness. Thank you, Lord, that I did not get that job because I was a Christian. 
Thank you, Lord, that I did not get that job because I wasn't qualified to get that job. Lord, whatever it is, I am not lying to you, Lord, and saying that I am enjoying this because pain by definition is painful. Lord, it does hurt. And Lord, you know that it does hurt. But Lord, above and beyond the hurt, I am seeing a greater vision, and that is a great vision of your sovereignty. Lord, thank you for this trial. Rejoice in the trial. Number two, and closely related. Suffer with a proper attitude. You know, it is sad to me when I see the number of Christians who do not know how to suffer, and they exist as though they are not Christians because they do not acknowledge the sovereignty of God they don't have a proper perspective on suffering, and as a result, their suffering does not produce endurance. It's not just suffering that produces endurance. It is rejoicing in suffering that produces endurance. And the person that suffers incorrectly, sort of like the person who exercises incorrectly, you are doing damage to your joints and to your muscles. The pain that you are feeling is not just a healthy pain of exhaustion, which is going to bring endurance so that you will be able to wrestle for six minutes. No, what you're actually doing is, is, is you're hurting yourself and you're going to need surgery to correct it. If you are suffering incorrectly, it will spawn bitterness and spiritual immaturity. How many Christians do you know that are going through it. And man, they are sour. Naomi. Don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me bitter. I left rich. I come back with nothing. She's standing there with Ruth. She is eventually going to be someone who is in the, the, the line of Christ. I got nothing. I've got nothing. This is miserable. You know that phrase, whatever doesn't kill you only makes you stronger? It's not in the Bible and it's not true. You see, it is very possible to be worn down and discouraged by suffering and be the worse for it. And that is why it is so important to understand and to trust in the sovereignty of God. As Job said in 121, when he lost everything, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Maybe right now you are enduring suffering. I need you to evaluate your attitude. Not only are you praying and thanking God for it, but, but, but your attitude, are you accepting it and viewing it as a necessary step in God's design for your maturity leading toward endurance and spiritual growth? Or is your suffering making you hard and jaded and cynical and bitter? Don't waste your suffering. It's a valuable kind gift that God is giving you. Let it have its designed work in you. Number three, and finally, desperately, desire 
to feel God's love poured out in your heart by the Holy Spirit. Do not be content to have a heart which does not experience the abundance of God's love. Now it is good that you are a possessor of objective truth. It's good that you know the doctrine. It's good that you understand that God so loved the world. It's good that you understand that God's love is connected to the gospel, which is of first importance, and that is that God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You believe the gospel. You do well. But God's design is not merely that you would know about his love. He wants you to actually experience the fullness of His love in your heart. Let's talk about romance for a moment. Ladies, I'm talking to you right now. You do understand that there is a difference between knowing that your man loves you and feeling that your man loves you. And what ladies want, I'm letting you in on this, gentlemen. This is Ed, the doctor of love right now. Don't question me on these matters. I, I, I have a PhD here. I know all there is to know about romance. What you are seeking to do is to make sure that that woman feels your love and not just that she is informed concerning it. In the same way, I am telling you that God loves you, but I am not telling you anything that you don't know already. God doesn't just want you to know that He loves you. But God has sent His Holy Spirit on a mission, on a task. And what is that task? That task is to pour His love out in your heart so that you will experience it, so that you will feel it. My encouragement for you today is do not walk through this Christian life content simply to know about the love of God. Every week I tell you, don't forget that God loves you. Well, amen. Today I ask God, might He allow you to experience that love in your heart? What are some reasons why you may not be experiencing the love of God? Well, here's one. Maybe you're not saved. If you are not saved, try as you might, you will never experientially know the love of God. If you would like to know what it means to be saved and in a right relationship with God, Please come speak to me after the service. I will take as much time as we need to explain the gospel and salvation to you. Another reason you might not be experiencing the love of God, maybe you are saved, but you have grieved the Holy Spirit. You understand that the Holy Spirit is a person, and He can be grieved. And if you have unrepentant sin, you are grieving the Holy Spirit and you are short-circuiting the experience of the emotion of the love of God being poured out in your heart. 
Maybe you are not experiencing the love of God in your heart as it's described in Romans 5, 5, because you are so consumed with the cares of this world and you are so worldly, there is actually no room for God's love. It, it, it simply is not a priority to you. Or maybe it's some other reason. But whatever it might be, my encouragement for you today is do not continue to live without knowing the abundance of the love of God in your heart. Do business with God. Get serious concerning the love of God. Become desperate for His presence. And if you're stuck, you just need to pray. Blessed Holy Spirit, I long for God's love to be poured out in my heart. And I confess to you that I cannot do that. So dear Holy Spirit, will you please bless me in this way? You know, the Apostle Paul was a man who prayed. Uh, he prayed for the churches that he planted. Uh, he prayed for the church at Ephesus. Uh, in the book of Ephesians, we have a prayer which lines up very closely with our text today, which Paul prayed for the Ephesian Christians. And so I don't often insist that you turn to a passage, but with all the influence that I have, I would ask please that you would take your paper Bible or your phone and that you would go to Ephesians chapter 3. And in closing today, here's what I would like to do for you. I would like to pray for you on the basis of what Paul prayed for the church at Ephesus concerning the subject of the love of God being manifested in your hearts. And please follow along. Please look at your Bible. And, and please allow me to pray for you at this time. Ephesians 3, 14 through the end of the chapter. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of your glory, the abundance the superabundance of the brightness of the majesty of all that you are, may you grant that these people of North Shore Baptist Church be strengthened with power through your Spirit. Lord, we acknowledge that if this is to come about, it will happen through your Spirit. And Lord, it's not going to happen on paper but Lord, we desire that it happen in their inner being. Lord, in our hearts. Lord, we desire, please God, that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. Lord, may we not be content unless Christ is felt in our hearts. And Lord, I ask that these people would be rooted and grounded in love, that they would have endurance, that they would, Lord, have character. 
And, and Lord, that they would have hope. Lord, please, I beg you, may these people please be strengthened to understand and to comprehend with all of the saints. Lord, this is not something just for special Christians or just for missionaries or just for pastors, Lord, but this is for all the saints. I pray that everyone who is a child of God that I'm praying over right now, God, I earnestly beg you that all of them will comprehend what is the breadth and length and height and depth of your love. And Lord, that they will know the love of Christ. Not about the love of Christ, but experientially. Oh God, would you manifest yourself in a special and an unusual way that these dear people would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Lord, we are limited in what we can understand. Lord, I thank you that your love goes beyond our understanding. God, I ask that these dear people may be filled with all the fullness of God. And we will praise you for it. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly. Lord, I thank you that what you do you don't do the bare minimum. Thank you, Lord, that what you do for your children, Lord, is in abundance, that it is poured out. We praise you, Lord, that you are able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. Lord, we don't even have the capability or the capacity to, to, to ask for that which you can do. Amen. We praise you for that. And Lord, we thank you that this is in line with and that it is according to the power that is at work in us, within us, which indeed is the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we say to you be glory in the church and in Jesus Christ throughout all generations forever and ever. This is our hope. Amen.